This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Speaker for the Living. My name is Seth Dare, and I'm here once again with Amber Moffat. Graduate Associate Director of the Human Trafficking Center. Hello again. Hello. So what shall we talk about today? Well, with the recent election, I thought a really interesting topic to cover would be migration policy and how it affects trafficking for obvious reasons. So, (laughs) Wherever you are on the immigration debate, this topic matters, like our migration policy is not neutral. In a state-based system, I would agree with you that we should know who's in our country, ideally, that we should have some vetting process, that certain people should be deported. You know, on a a grand scale, I'm not going to disagree with any of those things. But the reality can be more complicated and controlling borders can be harder to do in reality, even when a lot of resources are put toward that end. Like we're, we have a lot more personnel and more, you know, a partial wall at the border now. So if we compare that to pre-9-11 or even 9-11 itself, we're throwing a lot more resources at our borders and we still have people crossing the borders, and we have an administration that seems like it's going to take a harder line on that approach. So our discussion today is not going to be, should we have a hard or soft line? It's going to be, how does that affect trafficking? Like, How does migration policy in general affect trafficking? Does it make it better? Does it make it worse? Are there other factors we're not looking at? that sort of thing. So uh, where should we start? It'll probably come out throughout the course of my talking, but I'm just, just so we're out in the open, I'm very pro-immigration, pro-migration, and I definitely fall on the side of having more, um, of facilitating migration through legal avenues a lot more than than many people are. I'm not one of those hardline stancers. Uh, stancers? Anyway, um, I'm, I'm not one of those hardline stance peoples. So I should put that out there. Um, however, I am of that opinion because of a lot of the research that I've read. So when looking at, at migration policy and how it affects trafficking, I very much so think of it as the metaphor of when you're trying to control a river you don't just try and stop the water from flowing because it's just not going to happen. The water's going to keep coming and eventually it's going to overflow your blockade, if you will. Um, I think this is actually like came from a Chinese proverb. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's where it came from. But what you do when you're trying to control a river is you guide where it flows. Um, And I look at migration policy in very much so the same way. Since 9-11, our policies have become much more on the side of trying to block that river. And so when you wanna see how migration policies affect trafficking, you first look at how migration policies are affecting migration. Because you know trafficking 
is uh, David Feingold said, trafficking is migration gone horribly wrong. And so trafficking happens within the stream of migration. So you look at what happens to migration first. And a lot of the research that I've seen shows that the hardline policies of trying to just outright prevent people from coming into the country, it doesn't actually keep them from coming into the country. It does keep them from coming into the country legally, but there's a very strong correlation between those coming in. There's a very strong correlation between legal avenues being provided for migrants to enter in and um, how many illegal, illegal immigrants are coming in. So the more legal avenues that are provided, the lower the rate of illegal immigration. One of the factors that isn't always talked about is the fact that there are country quotas for the U.S., for instance, of which countries, how many people can come in from different countries. And so to have a year or 10 years from certain countries is not unheard of. And so the question of why not come through legally? Well, because sometimes it's not that easy. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's not that it's not an option for a lot of people, um, especially with some of the policies we have in place. The last podcast we did, that I did with you was on refugees, and, and I talked a little bit about how difficult it can be to obtain refugee status into a country. So if you are denied refugee status, but you still desperately want to get in, you're going to find a way in. And so if that legal avenue is denied to you, then oftentimes you're going to find that illegal avenue to go in because you're determined. So, you know, um, especially with the refugee issue, you know, uh, the U.S. is only, and most Western countries only allow in a certain number of refugees every year. And so once they fulfill that number, they're not going to let in any more refugees, regardless of whether or not you qualify. So you just have to wait until the next year and hope for the best. And then if you don't make it then, you have to wait for the next year. Um, but to qualify to be a refugee, you, you know, there's very stringent criteria that you must fall under. So if you're an economic migrant um, and let's say your country has been ravished by a famine and so you're trying to leave so that you can find food or you can find jobs or you can find livelihood means, then you don't qualify as a refugee. So you have to go in, you have to try and get in under a different visa, which oftentimes is very difficult because of country quotas or just because of, you know, maybe the U.S. just doesn't want to let in, let you in for any reason. I mean, sometimes it can be very subjective. And we're not going to be talking exclusively about the United States, but it is a point of interest and a point of contention at this point uh, in America. So uh, there are some examples we will have from there. And looking at Mexico in particular, and we've been bringing in or allowing laborers from other countries since America began. Slaves from Africa, various populations coming in to farm. For the past 100 years, people have been coming in from Mexico to work. And looking at migration patterns historically, everyone who came over didn't just said, I want to be an American and live in America, so I'm going to leave Mexico forever and be an American. 
It was very common for people to come, work for a while, and return home. Or even, even within Mexico, people will migrate in a pattern and not just go somewhere else to move. The idea that people just want to migrate somewhere else permanently is often a myth. It depends on the person, but people, like Americans, have a certain attachment to their home country. They don't always want to leave, and if they do leave, they don't necessarily want to leave forever. So one of the things that stricter policies have done, as has been pointed out, is we shut off, or made not shut off, but we made our borders harder to cross on the southern border. And so people who got across were less likely to go back to Mexico or other countries unless because it was harder to do so. Yeah, people actually get trapped in the US because of the migration policies that uh, migration and immigration policies that we have in place. Um, you know, showing stricter border control and implementing more militarized borders or just um, more border control personnel actually traps those migrants in the country for fear of being caught and then deported back to a place where they don't want to go um, mm -hmm. or they aren't ready to return to yet or you know so so it's actually very counterproductive in some ways now what some research that I've done that I'll talk about briefly because one of the things we don't always talk about with migration is why people move like people are illegal immigrants, but why? 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 What? What is the impetus that people, some of whom haven't left their areas before, are going to another country, going to somewhere where they don't know the language, possibly, where they don't know the laws, where the culture is different, where they might be outsiders? So in southern Mexico, we have uh, in uh, Oaxaca and Chiapas, we have farming communities. And up until uh, the early 2000s, looking at surveys and migration data, they largely had not migrated. And then with coffee prices changing, uh, we had a coffee crisis in 2001 where uh, prices dropped well below the cost of production. And before that happened, Mexico had joined NAFTA, they had liberalized their policies, which meant that they were providing less support to farms and farm workers. So when the bottom dropped out, and then also we had been, uh, I'm sorry, when the bottom dropped out of coffee, and we also had been sending subsidized corn, then the two crops that a lot of them depended on, corn and coffee, were no longer sustainable. And at that point, a lot of them compared to previously, a lot of them moved to the United States or at least migrated temporarily to the United States to get work. And that's the way it can happen, is an economic migrant can have no way to sustain themselves. And if there's no government policy to support them or if their family locally can't support them, then some people might go to another country like the United States and send money back to the rest of their family in order to support them. And that can happen very quickly when you're desperate. So that's just one example. Now, as things have, uh, have changed, now that we have over 600 miles of border, especially California, Arizona, and 
part of New Mexico, I believe. Then now we have cartels controlling a lot of lines. As you know, Mexico has a lot of drug cartels, but they're very agile businesses. They don't just smuggle drugs. They find other ways to make revenue, and that includes going out and actually talking to people and saying, do you want to come to the U.S. where you can make more money? But with migration being harder, they now charge a lot more. Mm-hmm. And uh, the so it's the, the cost of smuggling has gone up. I'll link to a podcast in the show notes that talks about that sort of issue. But the cost of smuggling has gone up and you're more likely to have to go through a professional or a cartel. And the best case scenario there is you're paying a cartel a lot of money to get you across. You're paying a transnational criminal organization to smuggle you across the border and you're paying them a lot of money and where, which at best is going to put you at debt, which is going to make you more vulnerable either to being trafficked at the point of getting to the country, or if you're in the country, you have a lot of debt and therefore can be exploited by people who want to exploit your situation. And so that's just a few simple ways of how some of this can work. And it doesn't just happen with um, with drug cartels. I mean, it also that that's a huge one, obviously, and and with organized crime. I mean, you face that whole once you're in it, and once you're indebted to it, how do you find the way out? Kind of movie scenario that is a real thing. I mean, there's a reason that it's scripted is because it happens. Um, but you also find that with just individual coyotes who are working on their own. Um, because border control has been amped up, it's exactly like you said, trying to get across is more complicated or is more difficult and therefore the cost of doing so goes up. Um, but what's actually really common too is is so you want to get smuggled into the U.S. for instance and maybe you're coming from Guatemala or you're coming from um, Nicaragua or El Salvador for whatever reason um, and you have to go through several people to do so. Um, What can often happen is you pay in installments because it's so expensive and you don't necessarily have all the money up front. So you get to the first person and you give them your payment for whatever service they're providing and then they take you to the next person. Until the money gets to them, which is oftentimes wired by family members who are already in the US or by family members back home, until they get that payment, they won't pass you on to the next step of the journey. And what oftentimes will happen is that they're um, placed into indentured servitude right then and there. So sometimes you're trafficked just along the way not even by organized crime, but just by the individuals that you're dealing with. So, you know, you get to the person and until they receive a payment, you're forced to do cleaning and cooking for them um, or whatever servitude, like home servitude, they are requiring and they don't let you leave. So that's just another example of what can happen. And female migrants in this process are vulnerable to sexual exploitation at every step of the journey. And young, young boys, too. But yeah, absolutely. Migration is such a big topic. It's so fundamental to human trafficking. Migrants are usually who is trafficked 
because of their vulnerability. And so whenever we talk about migration specifically and migration policy, it's just this big albatross of how do we deal with this thing and how do we craft policy and, and encourage our countries to craft policy that will not make the situation worse, not make people more vulnerable. Not re-victimize them. Not re-victimize them. And there, there are some ways to, there, there are positive changes that have happened with policy, such as the T-Visa, mm-hmm. where people can apply for a certain visa when they've been in a trafficking situation so that we can move toward not just treating trafficking victims like illegal migrants. The U visa is another option too, um, and the U visa. So the T visa, I believe, is specifically for those who have been trafficked, whereas the U visa is specifically for those who have been victims of severe crimes. I believe is how it's stated. You might want to look that up again, but I'm pretty sure that's that's how it's put: is severe crimes. So it includes trafficking, but also other victims of other situations as well. So, like, I think. Maybe domestic violence falls under that, like severe domestic violence. And anyway, but but I mean, that is, that is a development that has helped for sure. Now, in the United States, we our primary law is the uh, TVPA. And uh, there's been some other related laws, that, uh, like the executive order for uh, federal, federal acquisitions, dealing more with supply chains, etc., and states can also pass some of their own legislation, and they do. Immigration is primarily a federal issue and primarily about federal enforcement. And policy has far-reaching consequences. And we're at a point where it's understandable that people are frustrated with immigration policy. Uh, I'm frustrated with immigration policy. I'm frustrated that our government can't work together to agree on things and continues to do politics and with the new administration it's partially wait and see to be honest some of the rhetoric seems to demonize immigrants and migrants and I've certainly heard that from normal people I'm not saying that you all do that I know you don't but let's just say we are concerned that people might get lost in the shuffle and it's part of the reason we're talking about issues like migration policy and trafficking. So you mentioned the TVPA. Just for people who may not know what that stands for, that's the Trafficking Victims Protection Act that the United States passed in, I believe it was 01. And that's basically the whole act around trafficking victims. That's also what put into place our policies of of looking at other countries and having to have a trafficking report for each country as far as what laws they have in place or don't have in place or what protections they have for trafficking victims, et cetera, et cetera. That's just the extremely brief, brief rundown of what the TVPA is, but just to give some frame of reference. One of the things that the TVPA has put into place is with those trafficking reports, if a country is each country based on these reports is is graded is given a tier like tier one is oh you're doing a good job you're actually making an effort and tier three is wow this is really awful and you're not doing anything 
And so if you're rated as a tier three country, then that is reason enough to have sanctions against that country from the US, which um, is kind of interesting because when you look at it as far as trafficking, kind of it makes the problem worse. And I was just reading up on this today, De Stefano actually talks about how these sanctions are completely counterproductive because it exacerbates the causes of the trafficking. Um, what's leading to a lot of these trafficking situations in these countries is people who are going to smugglers to try and get them to a place where they can actually have work and send money home or you know, poverty or conflict or, or many different things. Well, if people are coming across because they're impoverished, if that's one of the reasons they're being trafficked in the first place, is implementing sanctions against that country is that really going to help improve the poverty situation? No, of course it's not. Then he goes on to talk about how he's the the sanctions are not punishing the traffickers or the organized crime. It's punishing the governments and the people that the governments are supposed to be providing for. It's downplaying. It, it's giving these states reason to downplay the problem of trafficking in the country for fear of sanctions, and so therefore you're not getting a clear picture. Um, so it, the TVPA is, I don't know, I, I feel like it's at least a good start. At least there's something, but there are still a lot of issues there. And though it's not immigration policy, it is dealing with trafficking, which is a form of, of migration. It's forced, you know, forced migration. And so it does kind of fall under the migration policy umbrella, if you will. So it's worth looking at, I think. Now, in future podcasts, we will be examining specific proposed policy changes once we know what they are, because aside from statements on like Donald Trump's website and uh, statements by some of the people appointed to positions that can influence migration policy and enforcement, you know, it's not February yet, so we don't know what people are actually going to do. So once we do, we'll try to give as objective a take on these things from our perspective, looking at it through a filter of how it affects human trafficking. Yeah, it's really hard to make any sort of forecast until we actually see what policies are going to be put in place, especially with some of the wavering or backstepping or backtracking that we've seen so far, and we don't know if it's going to go back forwards or, I don't know, and it's kind of hard to know what's really going to be put into place given the small amount of precedent that's already been set. One of the big platforms that Trump ran on was an increased border control situation. You know, the, we're going to build a wall across the entire border or most of the border or at least more of it. We're going to enforce the immigration laws that we have and we're going to deport you know, hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants. But what is not often looked at is the actual research behind that. And it's research shows, especially in previous efforts to increase border control, that it doesn't actually stop migration. Um, it just moves it to somewhere else. So if you look in the 90s with the border control efforts that happened there, there was 
like Operation Gatekeeper and Operation Safeguard that happened along the, like in Arizona and New Mexico and I think Texas is where these regional efforts happened on the border. They, the research actually shows that these weren't effective in preventing the migration flows. They were effective in preventing migration in those heavily guarded areas, but not in the other areas that then became less well-guarded. So basically it's, it's like a pop-up effect. It's more of, oh, we're suppressing it here, but then it just pops up over here instead. I mean, that's something that really needs to be considered in the upcoming presidential terms with this kind of hardline rhetoric that's already been set of, of, oh, we're gonna close the borders even more and control them even more is, that's great in theory, but it doesn't, it, it hasn't been shown to work. And this is not just in the US. I mean, there are examples of this in other countries as well. Um, but that's another thing that, again, as previously mentioned, it increases the cost of that migration and therefore exacerbates the trafficking situation. Well, and to get back to transnational criminal organizations like drug cartels, regardless of all the reasons why drug cartels get drugs into our country, they get a lot of drugs into our country, whether it be through tunnels or planes or drones or boats or people walking across the border or cars with compartments, but mostly semis. And we do have technologies to try and deal with them, but cartels who make a lot of money do a lot of research and development in order to get their product across the border. And we have 5 million semi-trucks a year that cross our southern border. With that kind of will, if we're talking about having a stronger border, part of the problem is how do we deal with drug cartels who make a lot of money through drugs and make money from smuggling. It's not easy to fight criminal organizations when they're involved and they're profiting and they're innovative. So that's part of what we're facing. We're, we're past the time where people would just decide, I'm gonna walk across the border because there isn't a wall and we'll pay some amateur to get us across. Yeah, and a, and a lot of these people who are, who are trafficking or smuggling migrants across the border, they're playing off that fear of deportation. They, these migrants know that they're not legally supposed to be entering in the way that they enter. I mean, that's not a big secret, but I mean, they have in their minds very good reasons for doing so or a necessity for doing so, so they're going to do it. However, what makes the trafficking so effective is like you said, I mean, whether it be organized crime or whether it be an individual who's just trying to make money for whatever reason or through whatever means, what makes these, this trafficking so effective is that the migrants know that there are consequences if they get caught and they have that fear of deportation. So it makes them less likely to come out and say anything or look for solutions to their exploitative situations once they are across the border. And these hard, hard border controls these hard migration policies make it even less likely because the, the 
stricter the migration policy, the more fear they have of deportation. It just, it pushes people farther, it pushes these migrants farther underground and makes them harder to, harder to locate. And then we don't know who they are because they're coming in illegally. We can't keep tabs on who they are, where they're coming from. There's no vetting process then, which is why oftentimes these really strict migration policies are counterproductive. We no longer know who's coming into the country. We know they're still coming in, and there's plenty of research that shows that oftentimes migration policies, again, not just in the U.S., but also in the U.K., also in uh, France and several other countries, or even not even developed countries, Bangladesh too has, um, there's research about Bangladesh and their migration policies. They show that these policies have not prevented migrants from coming in. They have prevented us from knowing who they are and where they're coming for, where they're coming from. And also, people come here illegally. They, they haven't followed the laws. They're also human beings. And if they also feel a lot of suspicion from people because they're foreigners or because they're Latin American, and they're already worried about being deported, then that makes them cautious about talking to people. Now, whether, whether they should be here and, and whether they should be deported, I mean, that's all, that, that, that's, that's a valid discussion. But I've never talked to anybody who is for people being trafficked and forced into conditions of slavery. And so we have to, we have to recognize the, the causality there that if people feel othered and they feel that they're a lesser human being, they're more vulnerable to trafficking. And to just be aware of how how society treats the most vulnerable people, how that can exacerbate trafficking. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of interesting, too, because there's... There have been studies that show that you know, the stricter the migration policies, the more the the more xenophobia occurs within that country, and the more othering that happens of migrants. And there's so I think it's really interesting that you bring that up, which is I mean a whole other problem because then it's almost like a vicious cycle. You know, you have really strict migration policies, which then influences the population, which then influences the policies. And, you know, where does that, where does that stop? I do take issue with some of what I've heard from people about foreigners in general, people who conflate and mix, well, people who come here legally and people who come here uh, illegally, undocumented, who just, who complain about illegals, but then go to complain about people who speak Spanish. There is a portion of our population who has an anti-foreigner sentiment. I've heard it, it's there. And that is going to feed into the problem. There are people who are xenophobic in our country. That feeds into the problem. That is not to say we shouldn't do something different on, on immigration. We are doing things. Our government is spending over $12 billion a year on border control-related issues. There are record numbers of deportations under the Obama administration. 
whether we're, we have all the best policies or all the right approaches, that can be debated. But we are doing things, and it's still happening, and demonizing unnecessarily the people who cross the border without demonizing the traffickers, without demonizing employers who knowingly hire, without looking at how policy can endanger the people who are crossing, without dealing with the how cartels are involved in that, that it is more complex than we're making it. And so understanding how that how migration policy works in that complex environment is very important. And so it's hard for people like me to not get angry when we talk about immigration in an oversimplistic way and demonize and other people who cross our borders illegally as if they're subhuman. So I got that off my chest. <laughs> well, I and also without looking at how we as a destination country are completely complicit in the trafficking and in the causes of the migration in the first place. Um, one of the huge, huge drivers of migration is the need for cheap labor. We are requiring cheap goods. We, we refuse to spend money on, on a t-shirt from whatever store for $50 when you can just get it at Walmart for 10, which I mean, I've been complicit in as well, of course. I mean, I'm a, I'm a grad student right now. I mean, I need all the cheap goods I can get. But at the same time, you have to understand that you're being complicit in those drivers. You are part of the reason that there's a demand for cheap goods. You're part of the reason that because there's a demand for cheap goods, there's even more of a demand for cheap labor, which is a big reason why um, people are migrating from other countries is because they see, oh, I can get a job here. People here aren't going to work for $5 an hour because they can get a job for 13 an hour or because they understand that that $5 an hour is below minimum wage. But people from other countries, $5 an hour is more than what they can make where they're at. So they're going to, they're, they're needing the work and the money to be able to send home. We're needing the cheap labor. So we're completely complicit in this whole cycle. Our economy and a lot of Western economies run off the need for cheap labor yet we're creating these stricter migration policies and making it harder for them to get in to get those jobs, which, I mean, it's no wonder that trafficking then thrives under those conditions. Well, and farm workers are part of that. Uh, farm workers who have been exempt from minimum wage since minimum wage began and who lots of migrants have been doing farm work for over 100 years. And if you count American slavery, forever. <laughs> Even longer. Forever in, in terms of America. And at that point, you could say, well, you know, do Americans want to do the work? Well, maybe, maybe they would if we paid more. But people seem happy not paying a lot. So what do you do to solve that? Do you have the government force them to pay more? Do you totally reconstitute our society, kicking out anyone 
here illegally, as well as if we had a lot more farm work available, are they suddenly going to want to double or triple the wages? Are people who haven't done farming going to want to do farming? Are they going to be good at it? That it's not a, a simple matter to just reconstitute the way our society has been for a long, long time. Now, it could possibly be done, but there's more than one actor that would have to change besides people migrating to the United States. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you mentioned the the idea of, you know, would Americans fill those jobs? So there are a lot of researchers that, that say no. What would actually end up happening is those jobs just wouldn't exist because we wouldn't have the labor force to fill those jobs as well as the jobs that we already have and the jobs that people are already looking for. But um, you also mentioned some of the other actors that we have to look at. You have to look at, um, I love that you brought up employers who knowingly hire people who have who are here illegally um because i i read some case studies on or a case study i think you sent it to me it was the one you sent to me that talked about both walmart and tyson who knowingly hired illegal immigrants and once and they were paying them below minimum wage paying them very very low wages and sometimes keeping them in really awful conditions, including locking them in the store overnight, uh, requiring them to work 352 days out of the year, then that's trafficking by a large corporation. But rather than prosecuting them for trafficking, they were instead charged for smuggling, which I found to be very interesting. Um, and that's, that's just one example of how we aren't holding other actors accountable. But there are various ways that people can be exploited in various forms of work. Uh, we've talked about sheep herders before who come in, in the version of the H2B, I believe. Yeah, that's uh, H2B. Uh, work visa. So they're coming in legally. And some uh, research with, done in part by Colorado Legal Services, uh, they went and interviewed and found significant percentages who reported conditions that in any other country we would call trafficking. Having their passports taken, uh, having their uh, movement restricted, not getting everything in their contracts, etc. And it's hard to prosecute. It's hard to investigate. But even coming in legally does not mean you're going to be fine. You're tied to your employer legally. Mm -hmm. There are some ways where coming through legally makes you more vulnerable because the employer knows that you are tied to them completely and that you can't leave legally to another job. That's a big one in Ireland, actually. Your, your visa is tied to your employer. And if you happen to lose that job for any reason, whether it be being fired or quitting, you lose your residency status. So you then need to leave the country. Um, and employers will actually use that to their advantage. Um, in the example previously given about Walmart and Tyson here in the US, um, a lot of employers will knowingly hire illegal immigrants. And then the minute they try and organize because they find out, oh, these are conditions that we don't have to put up with, 
then they magically find out, oh, they're actually illegal, and then they get deported. You know, and the same thing can happen even for those who are on those visas that you were mentioning, the H-2B visa, or those in Ireland, if, a, if an employer decides they want to exploit the situation, and they can easily threaten job loss, which means deportation, if they try to seek recourse for the conditions that they're working under. And labor trafficking, which is what we're talking about, uh, sex trafficking also occurs, but labor trafficking can look different. It involves force fraud or coercion. So fraud as in they are not doing the contract they thought they were going to, they're getting paid less, their expenses are higher because they might be buying from a company store of some part. Uh, they might be uh, domestic servants working in a house. They might be able to leave, they might not. Sometimes people are able to leave their circumstance. There's been examples where people have said, well, I can leave, but they threaten that we have eyes everywhere and the police, if you go to them, you'll be arrested or you'll be deported. And so they use fear tactics to keep people under control while controlling their movement, while limiting what they have access to within that country and debt is often a part of that. Just just considering that we're in Colorado, I mean, talking about the sheep herder situation, I think I think maybe you already mentioned it, but that's one that is a really big one here in, in Colorado that most people here don't even know is happening. I mean, that's another example of the whole H2B visa situation that you were just men mentioning. It's also, um, what I found most interesting about that when we were talking about it oh gosh, a while ago, was the fact that a lot of the sheep herders, people just assume they speak Spanish because they're from Latin America, but they d many of them don't. They actually speak an indigenous language. So that makes it even harder to investigate because there are so few people who speak that language. Um, so the New York Times put out this article about, um, it's called The Price of Nice Nails. And it's talking about the trafficking that happens within the nail salon industry. Um, it's really extensive. Um, so that's just one more example of, of that trafficking happening with migrants who are coming over looking for work and finding themselves in exploitative conditions. When looking at migration policy and looking at these instances of economic migrants in particular coming in, um, it's really important to note that there's this, there's this rhetoric that happens of, oh, they're coming in and stealing our jobs and blah, 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 and taking our resources. But um, they're not, these economic migrants aren't coming in just because they're like, oh, I can make more money over there. Let's, you know, they're coming, most of them are coming actually out of a necessity. It's, there literally is no work where I'm at. So they have to go somewhere in order to find work and in order to, to, have a livelihood. And that's something that I feel like in the current rhetoric is really overlooked. And then you have the question of, oh, should we be responsible for them? And that's, that's a whole other beast, of course. But it's like you were saying earlier, they're human. The migrants are human beings. And that needs to be remembered when creating these migration policies, as well as all the research showing that 
these hardline policies aren't actually affecting migration numbers or don't actually stem the flow of migration to the extent that they're looking to do. Right. And another part is that economic policy matters too when we're talking about trafficking and when we're talking about migrants. Mm -hmm. So you may or may not know about the Washington Consensus and (laughs) how the United States and the Bread and Woods organizations, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, how we both encouraged and through the IMF arguably coerced that if they, the the IMF was the lender of last resort. So when countries paid off or got into a situation, okay, let I'm deciding where where to start with this really big topic. It's an it's a whole other podcast in and of itself. I'll give you the really quick version. So in the 1970s, we the U.S. switched off the gold standard, and we did a deal with Saudi Arabia, and they agreed to put petrodollars or petro in U.S. dollars in Western banks. Then Western banks had a glut of money. Then they had to lend it out. So you had people who aggressively lent it out to other countries like Mexico. And then countries like Mexico in the 1980s found themselves unable to pay back their loans, which had been some of them predatory lending or people like groups like organizations like Maine saying, hey, here's the projections you're going to get from building this dam or, the, or these other things we're giving you money for. Not to mention bad regimes who squandered the funds, etc. So Mexico began in, in, in the early 80s defaulting, threatening to default on their loans. And so the whole world had to figure out how to deal with that. Uh, the different lending groups had to figure out how to deal with that. So the, so the IMF, which doesn't lend anywhere near what the World Bank has lent, but the lender of last resort was the International Monetary Fund. And through that, the conditions on the loans were structural adjustment policies, which were based on uh, the Washington Consensus policies, which uh, opened, opened countries for trade, less public spending, etc. So the West, the U.S. Treasury Department, the IMF, World Bank, etc. We told countries, don't have as many public services for your people. Open up to trade, export, be export-oriented. Well, their GDPs, there's been plenty of GDP growth with that, but there's also been lots of disruption and people left behind, like there is in the United States right now. So I imagine you all can understand that people can get left behind when you have with international trade policy. Well, people there, when you have governments not having as many public supports for people, because we told them not to, because we need less government, so then they leave and they come here or go to other countries. What else do you expect them to do? 
Yet what other option do they have? I mean, before, when you're making $10 a day and you have to spend eight of it to on housing and food to support your family and on education, and then you find yourself having to magically pay for, not magically, but having to all of a sudden pay for your health care as well because it's no longer provided, all of a sudden you're spending $11 a day and only making 10 What? It's exactly like you said. What What else do you expect them to do? They have to find a means of supporting themselves somehow. And oftentimes that means crossing borders to find work elsewhere. So let's not be oversimplistic about how to solve issues of economics or migration because they are related. Very much so. And the policies, look, the policies of... All of recent administrations, the Bush administrations, had their pros and cons with both of these topics. The Obama administration has pros and cons. And the next administration, the Trump administration, also is going to have pros and cons. And being that we're starting this podcast, I started in October, so we're going to be discussing what happens with the Trump administration and with policies and... We just really want to encourage you to learn as much as you can about policy and about impact and realize that there can be unintended consequences to policy that can harm people. Yeah, it's not really a matter. I mean, it's like you said at the beginning, like, of course, I'll I'll try and convince you of a certain... Of, of what policies are good and what policies are not just because I have very strong opinions on it and and whether or not immigration should be locked up or, or loosened. But regardless of what side of that fence you stand on or where, how close to that fence you are, there is the matter that there are unintended consequences no matter what the policies are. And trafficking is very closely tied into that. So that's something that really needs to be looked at with migration policies that are formed is what are these unintended consequences such as, you know, how is this going to affect trafficking? Are these policies addressing the actual cause of these problems as opposed to just the symptom, which is the migration itself? No matter what side of this fence you're on, I, I would highly encourage you to look at those consequences of those policies. And what we'd really like to see is what's been sort of already said. How does this policy affect trafficking? It would be great to hear the media, the alternate media, politicians. It'd be great to hear people ask that question in a serious manner and then look into what possible impacts it might have. You know, I find it really interesting. A lot of immigration policy and migration policies um they and even trafficking campaigns anti-trafficking campaigns focus on the restriction of movement but that freedom of movement is actually one of the articles in the declaration for human rights and i always i always found that incredibly ironic there's lots of irony the irony that if we truly wanted to have a free market, then let, 
but it requires flexible labor. Mm-hmm. And labor is not legally flexible to move where it's needed. It's um, one of the biggest questions that I always ask people who are against immigrants coming into our country or, or just against immigration in general is, you know, again, with so much of that research, these hard policies don't stem immigration. They merely hide it and it's, it then becomes illegal immigration. So the question I always ask is, do you want to know who's coming in or do you not? You know, if, if we make, if we make legal avenues for economic migrants and for the labor that we economically need as a country, we need this labor force. Uh, if we give avenues for this labor force to come in, then we know who's coming in. We're able to vet them. We're able to look and see who they are, where they're from, you know. And so I always ask, you know, because safety's such a big concern for so many of these people. And so that's the biggest question I ask them is, do you want to know who your labor force is? Would you rather have that or would you rather be trying to prevent them from coming in in the first place? Because you're not going to find that labor force otherwise. Now, what we see in the research is that a large, large migrant population in a given country can be an indicator of trafficking, that if there is a large population, a percentage of that population is probably going to be trafficked. So migrants and their vulnerability are key to solving this issue. And really, we have a long way to go. And it's complicated, but day by day. And we honestly hope that there are positive changes, that that the next administration does positive things, and that we have policy that's going to make trafficking less common. But we're going to do our part to advocate for populations who are not in a position to speak for themselves. Yeah, I think I think the first step in that is to is to get back to humanizing humanizing these populations instead of othering them and instead of looking demonizing them. I think that's if if we could get to a point even not even where we have good migration policy. I mean, I would love that, but even if we could just get to the point where we're humanizing them again and not looking at them as job thieves or a drain on the economy or you know, any other number of somewhat xenophobic stances that people take far too often in my opinion i think i think that would be work well done and and like i said the first step in in this particular piece of the trafficking the human trafficking battle and with that we'll end this episode thank you for joining us and thank you amber for being on the show oh thank you until next time This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.